o'clock Eastern time, the only time zone that matters, suckers. Guy Adami here, Dan Nathan there. This is Market Call, 30 minutes because I got a 5,000 at 1.30. I got to be in the city, Dan, as you know. In just a few minutes, we're going to be talking with EY from SoFi, who prior to the show was cracking wise about my age. Good for her. I sort of dig that. This is sponsored, Dan, as you know, by SoFi. Get your money right all in one app. And of course, our friends at Backset Financial Data and Analytics that are powered by Tomorrow, our data provider as well. We had a great thing with Butters at all the other day. I sort of dug that, Dan. Yeah, that was great. We um, And you guys could check that all out. Um, that was the FactSet 2023, the triple E's. That was their outlook there. So we had uh, Eli Reisman, we had Matthew Haggerty, and we had the man, the myth, the legend, John Butters. Butters. You just call him hashtag Butters. He yeah, is the senior earnings say. inside analyst. But we covered... You know the the EPS outlook, the energy outlook, the EC, the ESG guy. You were a very nuanced guy on ESG. You got a lot mm. to say on that, and I think that threading the needle between the energy conversation and John. So Barnes I did that though, the way I wove it in, yes. like a yeah, seamstress, yeah. like friggin' Betsy Ross. That for right, you, old you guys can find that. Timers you, out there. <laughs> you can find that on our YouTube page. You know where to go and find that. It will also be in our podcast store, uh, in the Market Call uh, feed. Uh, so check that out, and on the on the tape feed tomorrow. Um, uh, guy, let's let's talk about what's going on here. I mean, weird like, day actually. Very weird day, and I, and actually, without without what, what do you say? Giving up the the ghost? Is it yeah, the ghost? Go, ghost. ghost. What, what, I don't it? know why you'd want to give up either, but. Yeah, um, you know, I got a little, I got a little pears trade in a couple of Nasdaq stocks. One dog's going one way, one's looking the other. What do you want from me? That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, you know what I'm doing there. Um, but you know, it's kind of interesting. You know, the Nasdaq is unchanged ish. It's it's down now. If I'm looking at the NDX, about eleven handles, about ten basis points in a day. That the Google is down nearly five and a half percent. A lot of green in the Nasdaq. A lot of green in tech stocks. But mm-hmm. starting to see some stocks. Give it up a little bit, guy, here. I, I mean, it was a sea of green earlier today, and now it's kind of like it looks like a, a, a Christmassy sort of thing. There's some red. Yeah, there's some yeah it, was, it was clearly, you know, I don't really know what the market was taking its cues from earlier today, but with that said, I haven't known for a while. But obviously, I think Disney gave people sort of a collective sigh of relief. I'm not really sure why, but okay, I'll buy that. Um, but here we are. The reversal today, I think, is something to take into consideration. And this is all... You know, this is going to be one of those weeks, I think, we look back at the same way we look back in that middle of June week and the same way we look back in that middle of October week when you saw a lot of volatility, a lot of intraday volatility. um, And then that subsequently, at that point, was a short-term bottom for the market, if you recall. And it was also the short-term, actually longer-term top of the VIX. Now one has to wonder, with this intraday volatility that we're seeing this week, with a VIX, you know, in the teens. Well, is this twenty right something? now. Well, hey, but you, hey, yes, twenty yeah, right now. On. But you understand I, what I'm saying. I, I know, and I want to pull this thing up here right now because the VIX looks like it's ready to party. I'm just uh-huh. going to tell I like that right you now. That, and, and no, I, I mean, like, listen, I, there's lines that I just want to draw right, right here with my my head. Look, look at look at that thing. Okay, look where it found support. Okay, on on a one year basis, look at just kind of that really really uh, well defined downtrend that's been in since mid December. December. Okay. So that was an interesting point there. That was a great opportunity to buy stocks here. And you look at that 200 day moving average just above that December high. I mean, we could have a mid twenties VIX. And and Mm -hmm. what do you think? We're going to have an S and P let's throw that S and P up. We're 4105 ish right now, or, or, you know, uh, 
And I, you know, we have a retracement back to that yeah. 200 moving average. I mean, that's, that's what happens with the 25 VIX. And what have I been saying in terms of this formation? You know, you obviously have that downtrend line, longer downtrend line that we yep. violated to the upside. You have that shorter term uptrend line. What I said, and this is not rocket science, and I know most of the people watching and listening know this, but with each passing day, that uptrend and downtrend will converge. And oddly enough, it's converging right around the 200-day moving average. So something's got to give like that Jack Nicholson movie. But to your point, a mid-20, it's called a 25 VIX over the next couple of weeks, probably suggests, Dan, that we're challenging that convergence. And that convergence probably comes in around 3950-ish. Yeah. And then we'll have a conversation about what's going on and what's the backdrop. But it's clear something's going on this week. It felt different this week. It's only Thursday. I know tomorrow's going to be another one of those days. But same type of feeling I had back in June and yep. the same type of feeling I had back in October. And oh, by the way, we talked about it then as well as being the situation where, you know, you might be wanting to pay attention here, folks. And both times were a tremendous buying opportunity. One has to wonder if this is going to be that tremendous selling opportunity. Well, I, I do think it is. I think there's a couple stocks that have to break. Obviously, one of them is Tesla. I've been short of the Tesla. Um, I've been doing it through the TSLQ. Um, I started buying that in the high 50s, people, and here it is down at $43. That's what you call a disastrous um, sort of trade. I have averaged into this thing here um, in the TSLQ. My average is, is just below 50 now, and that doesn't feel particularly great. I'm down about 14% um, percent in this trade, but I will tell you this. I, I I have some other shorts that are starting to work that are starting to help me out a little bit. I had some longs that were helping me out a little bit. So uh, bad risk management, bad entry on the trade. Um, but this thing is an all out mania right here, guy. I mean, if you look at this thing at 211 or so, it bottomed out at 101.80 um, about a month ago here. I mean, this thing is doubled. Think about it in market cap terms. I think this thing's about to break. I think the market's about to break here. You could say that's some wishful thinking, um, but I really do feel that's that way. And let, let's just pull up the NASDAQ really quickly here because, um, you know, this was one when we were on market call a couple of days ago um, when Fed Chair Powell was speaking and I said, listen, we're going down on the day. We did go down on the day, but then we made a new high a couple hours later. And if you look at a day chart, if we could pull up the day chart of the QQQ or the NDX, whatever you want to do here, um, guys, um, look at where we are as far as the levels here. There's been a lot of chop, and I think that's the point mm -hmm. that you were making about those prior periods. Talk to me about the chop in the NASDAQ, because this is one where we've seen some stocks just do a lot of heavy lifting. We know that trade. We've seen this thing before, but if you do have Tesla break here, and then the fever breaks in Microsoft, because that has been absolutely astounding. You're going to have an NDX going much lower. That's right. That's right. And when you talk about the chop, that's exactly um, what I was referring to earlier. You know, typically you see somewhat, I don't know, orderly moves. I think this week has been anything but orderly in some of the moves and some individual names and some of these indices. And you might as well throw the bond market in there as well. So as I've mentioned, you know, we've had a couple other instances like this over the last nine or so months. And I just happen to think, this feels like the week. And by the way, I usually say, oh, by the way, I left the O out. I don't get paid by the word. July, excuse me, February 14th, Valentine's Day is CPI day as well. So a lot of weird things. I mean, the convergence, again, you put that S&P chart back up, the convergence of the downtrend, the uptrend coinciding with the 200-day moving average, CPI next week. It's as they say, Dan, what do I call this? A veritable witch's brew. Witch's you have yeah, You know what? You have not used that. Well, you know, I try not to be too predictable. I mean, I'm predictable as hell. I know we all have our verbal, you know, quirks and ticks and those types yeah, of things. Do. But I do try to change it up from time to time. 
All right, real quickly before we get to Liz, let's hit a couple things that I think are top of mind for me. And, you know, actually, as bearish as I am and and, and have a NASDAQ short on, I have a Tesla short on, uh, a couple other shorts here. I actually bought the Google today, guy, at $94. Mm. It is down five or so bucks, down five and a half percent. Let's look at a 10-day chart of this thing. It had that nice gap after its earnings. Um, it gave a lot of it back. And then they're in this little chat war, this chat bot war, uh, with Microsoft, and we talked about it yesterday in the market call. You saw what happened. I mean, this stock, I mean, to have a sort of slide like this from 107 to 94 in two trading days on something that is not fundamental at the moment. There's no analysts that are modeling in their bar, no. their, their language model. This is their chatbot or anything like that. To see that sort of sentiment change, what does that mean to you? And let's throw up a one-year chart on that. Well, I mean, put the chart up, and I'll tell you this. I mean, we've made an argument... I have made incorrectly an argument. There have been others as well about Google on valuation. And one of the things I said the other day is maybe Google is cheap for a reason. And if you just look quickly, if you go all the way back to March of last year, we did violate the 200-day moving average on the way up only to have it reverse right back through it. And the same thing is happening now. And that moving average, by the way, is still sloping lower. So there's a Google's, listen, it's one of the probably 10 most important companies in the world, but there's seemingly some existential risk going on out there. Forget about the Microsoft chat and their barred thing, which was a disaster, by the way. You know, one thing I learned in law school, although I didn't go, um, is you have to know the answer to any questions you ask before you ask the question. The fact that they rolled out that barred thing and didn't know what the outcome was going to be, and it was a disaster, I mean, that's probably a couple hundred million dollars off its market cap. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here. It's just true in terms of what the stock has done. So I don't know. It doesn't trade particularly well. It certainly appears as though we have a date with destiny in terms of the lows we saw back in late October, early November. And we'll have another conversation. But in terms of a pairs trade here, yeah. I definitely think you're onto something because the flip side of that Microsoft, I don't know what people are looking at here. I really don't. I mean, Microsoft was 245 reported earnings, 253 in the aftermarket. We said, wait for the conference call. Conference call comes out after our show. Next day, the stock is trading 232 or thereabouts. And now here we are some 40 or so dollars later, seemingly on nothing, nothing that I can really um, make sense of. So there are a lot of things out of whack here, Dan, but I definitely think you're onto something in terms yeah. of getting out or selling Microsoft and buying Google. Yeah, let me and so let me just tell you how I'm thinking about this. And I think your your point is a good one on the Google. I mean, there's further downside. You have to start somewhere. I started mm -hmm. with a quarter position here. Okay, bought at 94, and I fully expect to kind of average into this thing um, into the 80s. And again, this is kind of like the trading aspect of of working your way into a uh, you know an investment in a way. No one's gonna like. You're not gonna start at the exact right price with the exact right size. You know what I mean? So you got to kind of get going in here. And that's what I did with the Tesla. Um, I had some room there. I had a couple really good trades on the short side late last year. And, you know, again, I have no idea when in, in, and how this thing is going to top out, that sort of thing. So I guess going back to the Google, you know, I fully expect to buy it with an eight handle. I'm working myself into it. On the on the flip side of that, as a trade, I'm looking at a Microsoft a, a put spread. And I'm looking at that 265 strike put in February, and, and I'm selling one of the 255. So I have a $10 wide, paid about $2.5 for that. And I think that over the next week or so, I could see that come in. Now, I might roll that if it starts going in the right direction, but I'm not getting also uh, like that committed or that convicted on the Microsoft. If I get 
you know, the Google coming in my way, but I also get Microsoft coming in, that might give me more oomph to add to my Google on the way down. So that's how I'm thinking about as a pair with Microsoft using options, defining my risk. With Google, I'm going to be averaging into it on the way down. How's that going? For you Godfather 2 fans, what a nice pair. Of course, that was uh, Robert De Niro's wife, Mrs. Corleone, what she said when he came home with a pair. We use that line all the time uh, with some of my asshole buddies, but we have a really smart crew here. Jay Kim just put something on the chat, and he's right. Microsoft has nothing to lose trying to steal search share. All upside. Google has to cannibalize its own business to compete. That's exactly right. Dan made that point, I think, on Fast Money. I think Karen did as well. And it's absolutely true. So Microsoft, I mean, this could be a bit of a lost leader for them. And it's basically helping them to help Google take their eye off the ball to a certain extent, because now they have to put resources into this thing so it's yeah. it's a fascinating backdrop a lot of strange things going on but a lot of competition that we probably don't talk about enough but microsoft is clearly uh taking itself into the google landscape yeah I, i'll just say this i mean again you know when you see a company a stock taken out to the woodshed on an event like that i just think it got mispriced in the very near term you know you know what i'm saying so like that's part of what my trade is here um and and again there's a portion of this trade that i will be in probably for a while let's see um okay should we do it guy this is the kind of the, the yeah, time that, on that thursday when you get, you by get the way before she even utters a sound you know there is something called elderly abuse so bring her in <clears throat> and let her address that because <laughs> you know she was casting aspersions about my age my advanced oh. age and you know as i've said to melissa lee once i have feelings too and melissa's <laughs> response to that was i know which was brilliant if you think about it i mean being aware of one's feelings and then hurting them on top of it is just next level. Anyway, hello, EY from SoFi. Hello. I don't say anything about your age. No, I mean, I you're the know. same age as Brad Pitt, and I think he's yes. a dapper young fellow. Yes, 100%. It's oddly enough the same day. Brad Pitt is somewhere right now saying, you know, Guy Adami and I share the same birthday. That's true. I he mean, is. maybe he's on a podcast, Dan. I don't know. But should please. We sh should we save the game of Would You Rather for stocks? And, and, yeah, please, and, uh, please, yeah, please, please, okay. please. Yes, thank um, you. <laughs> before we get to your um, some thoughts on the macro, we had a lot of fun chatting with you last Friday or last Thursday on the market call. It was kind of you know, we were kind of uh, getting all up in, in each other's grill here a little bit. But um, let's talk about this arc um, for a second here. And mm -hmm. and I just want to kind of like What's from that? a set. Well, Who from a, that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, it's your nemesis. It's Kathy Wood. She's the exact opposite. Now, um, well, when you think about this thing, it's kind of interesting that, you know, Tesla's obviously had a lot to do with this. But there was that mm -hmm. comment last week. I think she made somewhere in the press that she's the new Nasdaq. And you look at those top five holdings there. And, you know, Tesla remains a very speculative name, but it's also one of the biggest names in the Nasdaq. And then you have a bunch of crap. You have the Zoom. You have the exact sciences. You have Roku. You have Block. You know, and there's a handful of Teladoc is in the top 10. Coins in the top 10. You know, it, it's kind of funny. Is this just emblematic a little bit of just the market that we've been in in 2023 and does it make you a bit more convicted on the fact that we're likely to at least retest some level maybe not the october level maybe i'm giving up on that here on the lows here but you know this sort of excitement where this is the first time the arc is over it's 200 day moving average in, in what a year and a half or two or something like that look i mean nothing against kathy nothing nothing against this this etf but I think it is exactly what we're experiencing. And somebody said in the comments earlier something about, I'd like to hear the other point of view. I'll tell you what the other point of view is. The other point of view is that the NASDAQ is rallying. The market's going to continue rallying. We're going to have this V-shaped recovery and this big bounce, and we're off to the races, and everybody lives happily ever after because 
Inflation will come down faster than we think. The Fed will quit before we hit 2%, meaning they'll stop tightening. And something along the lines of businesses are cutting profit or cutting costs enough to preserve enough profit margin, but we're okay with giving up a little bit in the meantime. That's what the other point of view is. And that point of view lends itself to long-term rates coming down, even short-term rates came down for a while, the VIX coming down, and this idea of we don't have pressure on long-term growth or what we would call long-duration growth. The NASDAQ, ARC, the Qs, all of that stuff is full of things that rely on long-duration growth. So the rally that we've seen, absolutely, that's what it's based on. And I listened to the whole beginning of the show, but the only thing I remember was that Dan said the VIX was ready to party. And I think he's right. I think he's right. And look, none of us, I don't, I don't like a party in the VIX, but you have to admit that it looks uncharacteristically subdued yeah. given where we are. And like, it's just dying to sort of leap out above 20 again. Yeah. And it's, first of all, and every time you're on with us, you say something intelligent. So I'm not discounting <laughs> anything, but something you said last week really resonated with me and stuck with me. The fact that you know, when the market was rallying seemingly out of nowhere and you found yourself sort of questioning the work that you've done and some of the thoughts that you had, you reached out to some people and they said, stay with the process. And that's what we're trying to do here. You know, people say, again, I'm looking, reading the comments, you know, the three bears are back. It's not about being bullish or bearish. It's just trying to, in my mind, just sort of read the tea leaves, take in all the information and then just spit out what should happen on the back of that, what historically has happened in our careers. And I will tell you, as much as I would like to say it's all clear for stocks, the economy is going to go gangbusters. There are no headwinds out there. There are significant headwinds that continue to manifest themselves. I mean, we will talk about twos, tens now. You brought it up earlier, I think, in one of your Twitter um, posts. I mean, we're levels that we haven't seen, again, back to that 41-year level as we went out to about 84 or so basis points, again, on the way to 1%. And what I find really interesting and, you know, the people that constantly say, you know, it's different this time, there's nothing different about it. I mean, this portends something negative, and I don't think the stock market, Dan, is fully comprehending it. I'm with you, bud. And, and again, you know, I'll just say this for, you know, the folks, I, we appreciate you being here. Um, we appreciate the comments. We appreciate the feedback on 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 just our takes on the style of what we do or whatever. I mean, you know, I, I've said this many times, you know, when you enter a trade, you want to know how it could go wrong. Um, you know, if there's universal bullishness out there, I think it's probably helpful, whether you think we're right or wrong at the moment, um, to kind of hear the other side of it. Um, Liz, you have a note out on the SoFi Investing blog this morning. Uh, I think we kind of pushed it out here, but we have a couple slides here. And you're talking about being contrarian. You're talking about some of these very things. It, run us through some of your thoughts here, um, because, again, you know, we, I've been accused of being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. And, and maybe sometimes on the TV, I'll, I'll do that, because if I'm sitting on a panel and everybody's one way and it, it makes sense to try to pick that apart. But talk to us a little bit about this as, as you think about it in your process. Yeah. So first of all, next Tuesday is probably the biggest day that's that's looming, you know, right now for the market, which is when CPI comes out. Uh, and as Guy mentioned, it is Valentine's Day. Qu question for you guys. When I say yeah. my bloody Valentine, do you think it's a band or a movie? No, it's definitely a movie. It's also a band. Is what I found. I, I know nothing about too. either of them. Either way. Next Tuesday could be a bloody Valentine's Day. So if, if we get, and I mentioned this earlier, the other side of the coin, the, the other argument is that inflation's falling faster than anybody expected. If we get a hot print right. next Tuesday, 
I mean, all bets are off, right? All, the entire run-up that we've seen, everybody has to go back and, and figure out why we did that and if that was even worth it. So the title of this week's blog, The Future is Further Away, I got very abstract, I was feeling mm. literary. The future is further away. And what I mean by that is we continue to sort of just push out maybe the possible bad stuff. And I admitted, I think it was last week, might've been the week before, that what I've gotten wrong so far is I thought it would be more obvious by this point. I thought the market would think it was more obvious by this point that we were facing all these headwinds and that this probably isn't gonna end very cleanly, but it's not as obvious as I thought. So now what we're seeing is we've got hikes pushed higher, right? The, the terminal rate pushed higher, cuts pushed further out. And then you've got things like, Earnings growth, yeah, it's been revised downward, but it's this slow revision downward, and it hasn't really set off huge alarm bells yet. And even this earnings season that hasn't been that great, the market continues to kind of rally in the face mm -hmm. of that. So part of this is I always try to think about if you step back from it, it's easy to get wrapped up in every single day, what happens every single day or even every week. If you step back from it and just think about what's happened over the last few months, Right now, we look like contrarians in the bearish camp because there's been this growing popularity of the soft landing of, you know, everything is behind us now. The peaks are behind us. The peak of the bad stuff is behind us. So we look like contrarians. But if you would have rewound two or three months ago, it was the opposite. The bearish people were the consensus, right? So when things flip-flop that quickly, first of all, it's impossible to trade that successfully because if you trade it every single time that sentiment moved, you probably are too late to both sides of that coin. But when they continue to flip-flop that quickly and we don't have definitive data that's pushing us in one direction or the other, my, my spidey sense mm. tells me that the market is going to have to go through another, I won't, I won't say flush because I know Guy just can't help himself from making a toilet joke, another capitulation, another reality bite scenario before we can actually find definitive upside. This is not the kind of environment where markets find themselves in a, okay, we're done with it sort of scenario. But that being said, because I want to end this on some, somewhat of a positive note, I think we're getting closer. I think we're getting closer. Now that we've We've busted out above resistance levels that we haven't been able to get above for a long time. We're getting closer to the point where the market will sniff out when this could actually be over. But my whole point in the blog this week was that that just continues to get pushed out further into the future. Reality Bites, I think a great movie with Winona Ryder, who now obviously is the star of Stranger Things. And there are a lot of strange things going on. I weave this narrative so well. And the fact that you said flush, but said you weren't going to say flush <laughs> is just teased me up. But you know what? I won't take that bait because I won't do it. Although I did take it the other night on CNBC's Fast Money, sitting next to Dan, mentioning the cheers that I had for dinner. <clears throat> With all that said, I mean, there is a lag effect in terms of what we've seen from this Federal Reserve now in place over the last you know, 13 or 14 months in terms of this hiking cycle. We have not, the economy has not felt the effects of it. And clearly the market hasn't felt the effects of it either. And again, the Fed can say, you know what, we're done. That's fine. You're still going to have the effects of what they've done for the last you know, nine to 12 months. We have not felt that at all. And just one other thing, Dan, you know, at 41.50, which is ish where we were trading at in the S&P, if you just put, again, you just start to do math and just add numbers, you know, an 18 multiple on 41.50, you divide 41.50 by 18, you're coming up with $231 of earnings. I don't think anybody in their right mind thinks we're going to get there. That's probably 13% too high. And an 18 multiple in this environment is probably two turns too high. So you start backing stuff out and 
the market shouldn't be here. Now, people say the market's forward-looking. I don't know about that because I don't know what the market's forward-looking at. This can last. I mean, this malaise in the economy can last a lot longer than people think because we haven't seen these types of interest rates in 14 years. Back to you, Dan. Yeah, I, I guess the other point is that, you know, Fed Chair Powell and, and some of his uh, his pals uh, on the open market committee, I mean, they, they basically have said over the last week, what, five times that if we see increased readings, right, if the jobs market does not kind of cool down a little bit, that they're going to keep rates higher for longer. And I this is the thing that that has been the impetus to, to rip stocks, to rip stocks that you think should actually have, um, you know, rates should be a headwind. And that's what we saw in 2021 into 2022. So, you know, again, um, I, I can't uh, I, I can't make it out, but it is what it is. Let, let's take a look at um, our friend John Butters. He's the senior earnings insight analyst over there um, at FactSet. He gives us an early look to his earnings insight blog that will drop tomorrow on FactSet's um, blog here. And I think this is interesting because I think this is really kind of weaves in. Liz, I'd love to get your kind of take on this. Um, you know, he's talking about kind of companies that are actually having positive surprises. They're going up more uh, on average for, for, the, for the Q4 here. So uh, he says S&P 500 uh, companies reporting Positive EPS surprises have seen an average price increase of 1.5%, which above the five-year average of 0.9%. The market is also punishing negative EPS surprises less than average, okay, for Q4. So what is that telling you? It's telling you that, I mean, like investors are looking at all of these reports with rose-colored glasses. If they're bad, they go down, but not as much as they normally do on average. And then if they go up, they're going up more. So how does that fit into your narrative of what you wrote on your blog this morning? I think it's an indication that people are being overly sensitive. And first of all, it, it ignores the fact that fewer companies than average are actually surprising on the upside, mm -hmm. right? So we're rewarding it because we're so shocked that they surprised on the upside. And then on the downside, I mean, we've, we've revised expectations down so far that, yeah, if you miss on the downside, I guess that's probably pretty bad. But it's almost as if it's like grasping at, at straws to find something positive. So a company surprises on the upside, we're going to reward them handily. Okay, fine. But the overall trend is still downward. And the overall surprise is still worse than it usually is. So I don't think this is anything to really celebrate. And I think people are being uh, probably a little too generous with the rewards. I agree with that. And it's interesting. You know, we talk about the consumer, the health of the consumer. We uh, This is a new name. So Griffin, welcome. Griffin Keenan just wrote... Um, Credit card debt is the biggest aspect of all this. Can't get around that, especially if unemployment goes up in the back half of this year, which is going to do. I mean, the Fed wants unemployment to go higher. Clearly, they need that to happen. And we talk about it all the time, Dan. You're talking about now consumer debt north of $5 trillion. That's a record number. In a rising interest rate environment, that's not good. In an environment where companies are laying people off, that's not good. In an environment, by the way, where... Some of the inflation indicators, to Liz's earlier point, are actually starting to go back up. Gasoline is going back up. Lumber prices starting to go back up. Base metals, soft commodities. Orange juice is exploding to the upside. And I got to tell you, at my age, I'm drinking a lot of freaking orange juice. So something's <laughs> going on, Dan Nathan. 
Yeah, you know, and if you go and you take some tidbits out of some of these earnings reports, um, you know, we heard from EA that the consumer was kind of soft. We heard it from Chipotle the other day, um, you know, some of the consumer behavior. We've heard it. You saw that Capri guy that was down. They What do they make? Handbags? Disaster. Like Disaster. Um, you know, look at just how Home Depot is traded. It was trading about 340 um, just about a week ago. And now here it is at 318. Um, there's been a bunch of names, I, I guess, in the, you know, the department stores and some of this stuff. So, again, I, I think to your point about consumer credit going up, consumer savings going down, inflation readings kind of picking up a little bit. I know egg prices are down. I know you're really excited about that guy. You make a heck of a, a Western omelet, I hear. That's what the Lills tells me every once in a while here. So, um, again, I, I, I agree with uh, Liz. That that Tuesday report, that CPI, I mean, that's going to tell us a lot because what the Fed has been saying you know, if it does come in a bit hot, then it should line up that, you know, kind of higher valuation name should get hit on a higher for longer sort of scenario. Yeah. Well, so this is going to be hard to explain without a chart, but I'm going to try. So Do it. if you look at the year over year components of CPI, right, it's expected to come in, I think, at 6.2 percent. Last time was 6.5 percent. So the services component has been growing in that chart. It has not been coming down. The only reason headline CPI has been coming down is because the other three components, which are food, commodities, and energy, have come down. So they've compensated for the fact that services inflation is actually still rising. So what I looked at just before this was those components that have been coming down and compensating for it, they don't have much left, right? And pardon the pun, but not a lot of juice left to squeeze out of that, okay? So food inflation would have to come down. That's the one that has the most space that could actually compensate for it, food inflation would have to come down quite a bit to overcompensate for services still rising, which is exactly what the Fed keeps telling us. It's services, X housing, that's the concern. And you know what? It's not moving in the right direction. I'm seeing comments, um, and this is, another, this is another new name, so thank you. Now I can't find it, but she said the, oh, there's Paul Webb says, uh, AAII sentiment data released this morning, most bullish reading since 1230-21. That goes back to your the comment that Liz made before. You know, the contrarian, well, right now being bearish, given exactly that tweet or whatever it is comment, that's being being bearish here has actually now become the contrarian. It seems like everybody's gotten their arms around this soft landing. And somebody else said you guys are always bearish because you want your short positions to do well. I mean, it's just patently that? stupid. I mean, I'll, let me yeah. just say this. You know, people yeah. say all you people on TV do is talk your book. Well, yeah, actually, that's, that is true. <laughs> because if you think something's going higher, you're going to be long that thing. If you think something's going lower, you're going to be. The only thing we're trying to do, honestly, is to try to help people navigate these markets. And when all things right. have been bullish, we've talked about, guess what? Things are going higher. This is an environment where I'm bearish. Back to you, Dan. Yeah. So um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but uh, listen, dude, um, do you want people talking about the markets, talking about stocks that don't have conviction, that talk out of both sides of their mouth, that change their minds every day? Or do you want people who are actually digging into things and, and, and you know, kind of putting their money where their mouth is and, and are being articulate about the reasons for why they're doing it and being very transparent about it, too? So um, we appreciate you being here um, and hopefully you understand our commentary and the pushback. We, we've heard that a lot. And I got to tell you. There is no, unless, you know, Warren Buffett himself comes on and really kind of pounds the table on something. Nobody, nobody is moving around a stock one way or another. Okay. Yeah, like, it certainly is not me. By the way, Mike Cole, who I love, he's all over us all the time. Let's get to the heart of the matter here, Liz. This is for you. What's going on with the Bucks? And I got to tell you something. 
I don't know what's going on in New Jersey or Brooklyn or wherever these dipshits play, but, I mean, the Nets are a train wreck. And now, all of a sudden, right before our very eyes, the Phoenix Suns, who I think are the best team in the league, just got that much better. And your Bucks of Milwaukee, which are probably the class of the East, I'll throw the Celtics in there as well. Um, they got a tough road to climb, and they haven't made any moves. you got to wonder. I mean, we got to get some help there. I think in the backcourt, I don't know your thoughts. Trade deadline, I think it's tomorrow sneaks up on you like that i mean they don't call me to ask about the trades first of all i just have to add my two cents i'm not short anything i have i'm not short any stocks so i'm not trying to say anything that's going to help those short positions because they don't exist in my portfolio um here's the thing about the bucks they were good so my my college boyfriend was a really big bucks fan like obsessed with the bucks yes and they were good when I was in college. Okay. So that was like probably 2003, if I remember correctly. They made a good playoff run. And then we weren't really good again for like 15 or 20 years. <laughs> so, yeah. Look, the timing, the, the history would suggest that we've probably had a decent run. And I don't know. I, yeah. oh, no, look, it's probably listen, the Brewers' turn. I hope it's the when Brewers' I was, turn. When I was, just to put it in perspective, Dan, we got a 5,000, I know, but yeah, when I was a kid, <laughs> Lou Alcindor, now Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, played for the Milwaukee Bucks. And mm. they, they and those Nick battles of the late 60s, early 70s were epic. I'm dating myself a bit. You know why? Because I'm the only one that will. Back to you, Dan. You know who's a great guy is um, – Mark Lazary, who's one of the the lead owners, I've never of, met him. Yeah, oh, he's he's he he comes on Scott's show a lot. We saw him mm-hmm. down at the Eye Connections conference. Sure, we did. Uh, he he's just a, a great guy. You root for a guy like that. And also, I've gotten to know Wick Rosbeck, who's the the governor of the Celtics, and uh, we had a conversation a couple weeks ago he's not making any moves he wanted to see how all of these other guys would impale themselves yeah, in his sure. league and i think the celtics are doing great so all right wick go get him uh and and i'd like to see wick versus mark in the east how's that okay and about willis picture. reed guy i love this stuff is so good all right i let, will tell you yes yeah. i will tell you about willis reed one of my top three favorite <laughs> nicks of all time you're gonna be Bernard so late King. for whatever you have to but, get i mean to. that's a different show dan yeah. you want to take us out you want me to do it because i'm very think- good at it I think I'm not very good at it. Go ahead, buddy. Well, EY from SoFi, it's great seeing you've been you've been circumnavigating the United States. It's good to have you back here on the East Coast where, you know, you rightly belong. I know you dig your Midwest roots, but you know what? You're a city gal and I dig that. Dan Nathan doing your thing. I'll see you on CNBC's Fast Money at 5 p.m. For those interested, there's an SDIC dinner. I won't tell you where, but it's going on tonight. Uh, for those that are in the tri-state area. But that's it for Market Call. I want to thank our sponsors, SoFi. Get your money right all in one app, Dan. And, of course, FactSet Financial Data and Analytics that are powered by tomorrow. They're our data provider as well. Unless something weird happens, and the weird thing about weird is how it's spelled, uh, we won't see you tomorrow, but we will see you on Monday. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your day. 
I'm doing well. This is great for us here because we have, I think, many of our market call viewers, they have gotten to know John Butters. He's the vice president and senior earnings analyst um, over there at FactSet. I know that uh, we've also had Matthew Haggerty uh, on the program, senior manager of energy uh, analysis, and Eli Reisman. He's the SVP and senior director of ESG product management. Thank you guys all for joining us. We think that these three topics, as we think about 2023, are all going to be really important. We've been tracking um, a lot of stuff on the earnings front. We find the Earnings Insight blog that we get a preview of on Thursdays, and we get to talk about it um, on Market Call that drops Friday um, on FactSet's blog there. And maybe we can show you guys where you can, can subscribe to all of their work um, right there. There, there it is, insight.factset.com slash subscribe so you can get all these gentlemen's work in your inbox so subscribe right there um guys thanks for being here we want to start with earnings because this is one where you know guy and i we track it every week it's something we talk about on cnbc's fast money you know earnings inputs are really uh very important as we think about expectations as we think about valuation levels and we think about um where things are going and how we kind of arrive at our macro thesis with stocks john butters our viewers they know you they love you we just call you what do we call him guy butters i mean it's like share bono bono was there last night by the way and uh at during the state of the union i saw i'm saying myself next year i'm gonna go from bono to butters but that's neither here nor there dan I, I don't think John Butters wants to be in the in the State of the <laughs> Union anytime soon, um, as we've gotten to know him. But John, let's talk about what expectations are for 2023, because again, when we think about earnings estimates for the S and P 500, we're always thinking it relative to price. We're always thinking it relative to where investors feel comfortable buying stocks, where they start to get nervous about buying stocks, and that's all relative to growth ex expectations here. Give us a sense for coming into the year before we had this kind of seven and a half percent rip in the S&P 500. Where were expectations for the full year? Yeah. So if we look at the first half of 2022, analysts were actually steadily raising their estimates for 2023. And we peaked at about $250 per share you know, through May into June. And then really the end of June made, marked a transition point and analysts really started taking their estimates down. And as you can see in this chart, it's really been a steady decline through the end of 2022 and, and into this the first five or six weeks here of 2023. Obviously, it's been a uh, this earnings season for Q4 has been below average. We've seen you know by any of the metrics, and as a result, analysts have continued to take their numbers down. So at the start of the year, we're looking at 230 per share. That's come down to 224 per share. If we look at the sectors, you know multiple sectors have seen numbers come down. And what is interesting, you know, as you noted. While these numbers have come down over the last six weeks, the market has gone up. Mm -hmm. So the P-E ratio, we've actually seen an expansion of multiples over these last few weeks. So back on December 31st, forward P-E for the S&P 500 was 16.7. Today, that's up to 18.1. That's above the 10-year the, uh, average of 17. So, you know, usually don't see this happen, but earnings coming down, the price go up, and we now see a much higher multiple than we did just a few weeks ago. Yeah, it's interesting, Dan. I said similar last night on Fast Money. I said, you know, let's just make this into a math problem. I said, if you give the market an 18 multiple, uh, basically at 41.50, it's effectively where we closed, you're looking at a market that's trading around $231 or so worth of earnings. And I said, you know, that number is probably, John, I don't know, 12 to 15% too too large, too overinflated, and an 18 multiple in this environment is probably two turns too expensive. So maybe can you walk through that? Because you just hit that nail right on the head. 
Yeah, and what's also interesting, I think we've talked about this before. So analysts do typically uh, overestimate annual earnings one year in advance. Over the past 25 years, the average overestimation has been about 7%. So again, I'm not making a prediction, but take that 230, apply the 7%, that gets you down to the 214, 215 range. But what's even more interesting, if we look at the, the growth rate numbers, actually, I was just going to reference this chart. All of this growth is really expected to happen in the second half of the year. If we look at the first half, we're looking at expected earnings declines in Q1 and Q2, with an expected recovery in the second half of the year. And not only are analysts more optimistic, you know, looking, you know, one year in advance, they're more optimistic the further out you go. If we looked at a similar chart last year for 2022, you'd see a similar pattern where there was uh, uh, an earnings, a much, much greater earnings growth expected in the second half of 2022. And that didn't happen. The first half saw most of the growth, the second half saw weaker growth. So, you know, we're, we're 60% of the way through this earnings season. So we'll certainly watch to see if these numbers can, you know, where these numbers move over the, the second part of this uh, earnings season. But right now there is, you know, an expectation of a second half recovery in earnings in 2023. Yeah. Not, not just that. I mean, from your work here, it looks like 11% expected earnings growth in 2024. Speak to a little bit about, let's just say if 2023 comes in less than expected, that's where you expect the ricochet in the out year. So talk to us a little bit about how you think investors think about that right now, because I think Guy and I, this is not your job to make those sorts of um, predictions. You're just looking at the data here um, and interpreting it a bit. I mean, Guy and I think that 2023 is still too high and we think it probably settles out somewhere maybe flattish um, or so. I think there's a lot of prominent strategists out there who think that we could be down single digit percentage by the end of the year here. But then that just gives more oomph on the way out, I guess, in 2024. Right. So, you know, when we look at 2023 um, again, it, you know, at the sector level, it is interesting that there's, you know, a lot of optimism from the analysts in terms of, you know, eight of the 11 sectors are expected to see uh, earnings growth. And, you know, if we go to that chart with the sector breakdown, uh, it's interesting that cons they're expecting a big recovery in the consumer discretionary sector. And I think we talked about this a little bit the last time I was on, but a lot of that rebound in consumer discretionary is expected to happen with Amazon, uh, which actually reported a loss in 2022 and is expected to see a profit rebound in 2023. And then uh, also the hospital, the uh, hotels, restaurants, and leisure space are expected to see a big rebound. And, you know, it's interesting thinking about that industry. If we have any sort of an economic slowdown, that's likely an industry that's not going to perform. However, on the other hand, if we look at the most recent jobs report, that was an industry that saw the, the largest job growth, right? The hospitality and leisure space. So, you know, some interesting crosswinds as we look at some of these trends in 2023, uh, and on the flip side, energy expected to be down uh, about 16%. And again, energy was the largest contributor to growth in 2022. That sector had, uh, you know, 150% growth, so facing a difficult comparison. So again, I think it's interesting that, you know, you noted looking ahead to 2024, some of the areas in 2023 that are expected to rebound uh, or expect to see an opposite performance than what we saw in 2022. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in 2023 and if we see a similar trend in 2024. John, you analyze the data and, you know, I, I would submit, I think Dan as well, you do it probably as well, if not better than anybody else out there, but you also sort of a student of history and you've been doing this for quite some time. I've said this on the show, I've said this on market call, and, and I believe this, the last six months specifically, for me at least, have been not only in terms of the market, but just the economic backdrop, as confusing as it's been from quite some time. What are the parallels, if any, you know, analog is a word we use from time to time. The what you've seen over the last six to nine months in comparison to what you've seen over your career, does anything sort of stick out? Like, I remember this happening here type of thing. 
Yeah, well, I mean, a couple of trends. So, you know, one, we, I talked about earlier, sort of the, the, the inverse relationship we're seeing where prices are going up, estimates are coming down. I think that that's something we do see, uh, you know, on shorter phases. And again, obviously, you know, while earnings are a key driver of market prices, there are other factors as well. And, I, you know, I'll, I'll turn that back to you guys as the market yeah. experts, whether it's interest rates, you know, inflation, that sort of thing. But I do think over the longer term, if you look at 10 year, 20 year stretches, that's where, you know, that that correlation comes back and earnings are the driver of prices over a longer period of time. And one other trend to keep an eye on, you know, right now we're seeing three expected three straight quarters of earnings declines, you know, over the last you know, 15 years, it hasn't happened too often, but surprisingly, it has happened in recent years. We had it in 2018, uh, excuse me, in 2020 with the pandemic. And it also happened in 2019, coming off a tough comparison in 2018 to tax reform and profits being much higher in 2018 due to tax reform. So yeah. um, there is some there are some historical parallels there in terms of uh, multiple quarters of earnings declines. Yeah. And, and you know, again, this has been a, a pretty weird few years here. We think about the pull forward. We think about, you know, just some of the largest, you know, earnings contributors to the S&P 500. They're massive U.S. multinationals and they're also digital companies and they benefited from just some of the just, you know, some of the disconnects that we had during the pandemic and then obviously the reopening and they're also very exposed to the dollar so for instance you know when the dollar was raging you know the last few quarters it did top out in the fall i mean that was obviously a headwind uh, to those earnings you would think that you know again right here the dollar down you know 10 percent the u.s dollar index from the highs um you know it's still up a little bit so this is going to be something that we did hear on some of these calls so for uh so far that the dollar remains a headwind which you know guy and i were kind of scratching our heads as we're kind of thinking about some of those calls here um listen John Butters, we really appreciate it. We're going to kind of move over to energy. That was a great baton pass, if you will, um, to Matthew Haggerty here, because I think that last point that you made, that energy sector is projected to be the largest drag on earnings growth for the index in calendar year 2023 after being the largest contributor earnings growth uh, in calendar 2022. Matthew, welcome here. You're speaking, wait, the charts that you bring, and Guy, I know you're all geeked up. You love rig count. You know, I mean, you get charts like that and you get pretty excited here. Let's talk a little bit about some of the mechanics in the, in the space in which you track very closely because, Guy, these are things that you talk about a lot. Do you guys do you want to quickly just kind of set the stage before we get to, to kind of Matthew's work and some of the charts here, how you've been thinking about the energy sector? And and again, that contribution in 2022 did a lot of heavy lifting for the S&P 500. Yeah, no but, question. I want to hear Matthew's thoughts, but I'll say, and this is going to sort of dovetail into ESG next, but, you know, energy sector for a long time, I mean, there are a number of different headwinds, different administrations, obviously. ESG was a tremendous headwind for energy sector. And then when you saw that minus $39 print in front month crude oil, I think it was two Aprils or so ago, I think that was sort of the final nail in the coffin. And what I've sort of posited a number of times is all those different factors, Matthew, have forced these companies to basically become better companies where they can just no longer yeah. rely upon the underlying commodity, they had to be more fiscally responsible, they had to get themselves up to date, up to speed in terms of ESG, and they had to get their balance sheets in order. And quite frankly, I think over the last 18 months to two years, I think many of these companies, Matthew, have done exactly that. I, you know, I'm not looking to play stock market, but maybe speak to that phenomenon in the space. Yeah, I think certainly. I mean, you're seeing, you know, over this time frame from the boom years of 2016, 17, 18, over that period, you know, obviously EMPs were were losing cash left and right, and so you started seeing this build in in momentum that uh, that investors were were really leaving the space. 
Um, and so there wasn't really yet a catalyst to though to focus on this capital discipline, but the pandemic really brought that on as, as a catalyst because all of a sudden, you know, producers were filing for bankruptcy and, and they couldn't get access to those capital markets. So it really forced a change for these producers to then focus on, um, you know, giving sh uh, cash back to their shareholders in terms of dividends and share buybacks and, and paying down debt. Uh, and so that creates, like you said, a much healthier company today. Um, but also, you know, at where we look at ourselves maybe last summer when there was all this upheaval in the energy market, uh, U.S. producers were no longer willing to be that marginal producer to really mm -hmm. produce up to and, and balance out global markets. And so that certainly created some, some volatility in pricing when OPEC really had no other option. You know, they were producing about as much as they possibly could. It's interesting, Matthew. A couple of weeks ago, I know you know this, and I know the audience knows it as well. And we talked about it on Fast Money that night. But Chevron, before the day before, two days before they reported, they announced a $75 billion stock buyback. Yep. That represented approximately 20% of their market cap. Um, we, we were, I think, I, I think we were sort of interested in the size of that. But obviously, then the next day, you saw some of the rhetoric out of the administration. It, they talked about it briefly last night as well. So. Yep. There seems to be a bit of a um, political crosshairs on the back of these companies. Does that pose a headwind, do you think, or is that just a lot of you know, much ado about nothing to quote Shakespeare? Yeah, well, you know, I, I certainly think that, you know, as you see these pressures from the regulatory agencies, uh, you know, it, it doesn't make it any easier in, in an industry that is already incredibly racked with regulatory headwinds. You know, you're seeing a move towards reducing emissions across uh, across the energy space and and really across the uh, the entirety of the you know financial sector, and so just it it adds another straw onto that camel's back that you know maybe at some point it just be, it becomes too much. But yeah. at least for the time being, you know you're rolling with a you have to think also about the years of, of loss in 2017, 18, and 19. So at some point those have to even out uh, of how you pay back your shareholders. Yeah. So, so Matthew, you know, when you think about those announcements um, and, and also Exxon, you know, uh, made an announcement, not the size that, that Chevron did, you know, it was interesting that uh, Chevron sold off like nearly 10% right after that. So hopefully they had that buyback in place and, and they had the opportunity um, to do that. But talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, John's, uh, you know, you know, the, his, his work just saying, you know, how much of a contributor energy earnings were last year and, and how they expect to be a drag in the back half of the year. And is that one of the reasons why we've seen these sort of buyback announcements to help kind of buoy uh, earnings per share in the space? Yeah, I, I certainly think that that's part of it. Um, but another piece is, you know, the volatility that we saw in 2022. You know, you hate to hate to say that any any war or tragedy like what we've seen in, in Ukraine and, and with Russia invading is a positive for anybody. But if, if anyone did take advantage of that, it was it was some of the energy companies. And so they were able to fuel cash flow because of the increases that we saw in pricing over that time frame. Uh, but, you know, as we get into 2023 now, you know, one thing that we've been calling for is lower pricing, especially on the natural gas side. You know, natural gas markets are one of the things that, that we love to talk about at, at BTU and at Faxet. So, um, you know, the the incredible upheaval that we saw in 2022 literally fueled the massive production that we're seeing from natural gas currently. Uh, and that's fueling natural gas prices where, where we see them today of, of well below $3 in MMBTU. Um, but when it comes to an earnings standpoint, um, you know, that's, as you mentioned before, and as, as John mentioned, I mean, it was a huge contributor to the S&P last year. And so just following that up becomes much more difficult when you're seeing cost inflation 
literally skyrocket and, and uh, you know, seeing a whole lot more headwinds for the EMPs and uh, other actors. Let's talk about nat gas because it was you know, 13, 14 months ago we started talking about the potential for Russia, Ukraine. It subsequently happened. Yep. You saw a huge spike in nat gas. When I traded commodities for a living, we used to call natural gas uh, the widow maker for a myriad of different reasons. I mean, people have made and lost careers on the back of trading it, but the move higher in nat gas that we saw was epic, and then the subsequent move lower was equally epic. I think a large part due to the fact that Europe got really lucky. I, I mean, lucky is a probably strange choice of words, but in yeah. terms of weather specifically, you know, the mild wet, the mild winter certainly helped. But speak to sort of the backdrop now for Nat Gas and and how it looks going into now in earnest twenty twenty three. Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the pieces that really drove pricing in 2022 is is obviously the upheaval upheaval across Europe with the with, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but I think that was really a transitory dynamic, just given how uh, the U.S. natural gas market very much still is a U.S. natural gas market. You know, there is some connectivity to international markets through LNG exports, um, but that's only a, a piece of the overall market here, and so. When you have so much production that is coming out of areas like the Northeast and, and the Haynesville in Louisiana and East Texas, and then, you know, as well in oil driven basins like the Permian, um, you know, those areas are fueling a lot of production growth and we have nowhere else that we can really send it. You know, there isn't a whole lot of new export demand that is on the way here. Um, and so how we see that interacting with pricing is that you see a lot more production coming online, but not nearly as much uh, new demand coming on in 23 or 2024. And so what that fuels for us, and we've been calling for this for probably over a year now, one of our senior analysts, Connor McLean, you know, leads our, our nat gas analysis, and, and he's been calling for declines in natural gas pricing for some time now. Um, lo and behold, it happened a little bit faster than, than we probably uh, initially modeled it, and that's strictly because of those weather dynamics that you highlighted. Um, but what this means is for producers, you know, you've got a lot less cash flow coming in the door. And so they've got to tighten their belts a little bit and decide if they're going to focus on these dividends and share buybacks that they've been talking about. Or do you find a, a different way to, you know, stabilize production? Yeah. So when you think about stabilizing, you know, production here, and I think Guy, you know, started this this conversation out that these companies have been forced to, to kind of operate um, better, right, Guy? And so therefore, um, it's a, just a different sort um, of environment here. I'm just curious, Matthew, you know, when you think about usually, and I think Guy, when, when he used the term widowmaker, it had to do with the fact that, you know, weather events were black swan events. I mean, they were just yeah. really hard to predict. And now all of a sudden, you know, Guy also mentioned that, you know, the situation with Ukraine and Russia was on the radar, but no one, A, a everyone was hoping it didn't happen, yeah. you know what I mean? And then maybe it wouldn't be as bad as expected. But now, all of a sudden, geopolitical you know, issues have kind of been added to the kind of weather ones. And I'm just curious, like, how, how, how you guys think about that and trying to model some of this stuff? Because it really is obviously unknown. And there's other parts of the world that, you know, we might have geopolitical dust-ups. And after this, you know, few years of COVID, you know, all of a sudden, you know, energy has become a huge concern as a relates to national security, supply chains, and the like. And I'm just curious, that's probably made your job a lot tougher. Yeah, yeah, it certainly has. But, you know, luckily, we've got a great team of, of analysts with us that, you know, help us sift through all the news and, and figure out, you know, how to best interpret each of these geopolitical events. But uh, you're, you're certainly right. I mean, when you take one of the largest energy producers in the world with, with Russia, 
and you know cause an upheaval from that. That's the magnitude of that is is incredibly hard to predict. And you know, luckily we were you know kind of directionally right, but I don't think anyone saw just how far north it could have gone. Um, and you know, I will just say I, I know we're running a little bit out of time, but we're usually a little bit more of the bearish ones in the room, anyways. So uh, you know, the pricing that we're at today, you know, I think we were we were pretty spot on with it. I think you guys did a tremendous job uh, in your analysis for sure, which is why I, th I wanted to sort of your forecast for 23. Uh, it, it's interesting, and we're going to jump to Eli in a second, but we had Ted Carter Braxton worth on market call, and NatGas provides some amazing trading opportunities. So, you know, the fundamentals that you just outlined probably are spot on, but the trading opportunities are going to be unique, I think, in 23. Matthew, thank you. Let's bring in Eli Reisman real quick, Senior Vice President, Senior Director of ESG Product Management. How are you, Eli? Doing great. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I tell you what, twenty. I think 2022, and you can speak to this, I'd like to hear your thoughts, I think was the year when everybody sort of figured out their ESG mandates and wrapping the head around it and, you know, financial responsibility, the responsibilities that uh, around ESG. Speak to that because I think once that foundation has been laid, I think in earnest in 22, I think things get a little easier for companies moving forward. Yeah. So, I mean, 2022, we saw a huge movement towards uh, sustainable finance regulation uh, taking hold in a number of different places. Um, I think we're up to 20 different countries and regions now that are either ratifying or considering uh, ESG regulation, uh, which is a huge shift. And, and it's a huge shift, uh, as you said, in the positive towards standardization of a baseline of, of, of ESG information. Um, many of the regulations are, are aimed at providing standardized ESG metric disclosure from companies as well as investors. Um, and it's certainly in the EU become, you know, the primary focus uh, from our clients. We hear about the need to comply with SFDR all the time from our client base. Uh, however, when we're looking out to 2023, as all of these different countries and regions are considering uh, slightly different um, uh, regulations, it's important to note that if there's not a harmonization effort across these different countries, um, we're likely going to start seeing some pain points for both investors and corporates, uh, mainly, you know, uh, global investors, global corporates who are going to be um, exposed to and having to disclose to a ton of different systems. So there's, there's uh, going to, you know, as this continues to play out, there's likely going to be a lot more chatter about harmonization of all of mm -hmm. these different regulations. You know, I know you focus on these things and greenwashing, the amount of times it's been mentioned in your world, I think it's up, I th saw the number 130% between December of 22 and December of 21, and it's a 450% increase from the prior year. So, so obviously this has become top of mind. Speak to this and what it means and the importance of, of, of all this data and this graph. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's worth tying this in to the, to the ESG regulations or the, or the sustainable finance regulations that are coming out. A lot of them are aimed at trying to get rid of greenwashing in the marketplace. And so it's no surprise that we're seeing a, a significant uptick in the number of mentions of greenwashing across different fact set sources. Here we're looking at news, research, earnings, transcripts, filings. And in these uh, sources, we're seeing significant increases in, in the amount of uh, focus on greenwashing. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about greenwashing is it's not the easiest thing to quantify for uh, investors. Um, and so, uh, you know, our, our investors are coming to us or our clients are coming to us and, and are trying to find ways to 
you know, quantify and measure the exposure they have to greenwashing. Um, and it really takes different uh, types of data in order to get at, at the greenwashing that's happening because most of the ESG data sets out there are company self-disclosed or based on company self-disclosed information. There's a need for more timely and, and uh, timely data as well as data that balances the perspective uh, uh, from what companies are saying about themselves. Well, that sets me up for my next point, because the ESG data market, the year over year increase, I think the annual growth rate is 28 percent, as you measured as well. So people are trying to get themselves up to speed in terms of the number of searches and the data that they're looking for. Why is that important? Speak to that, please. I mean, this is a huge one. I, I think uh, the number of ESG use cases in the marketplace is growing all the time. I think with the addition of regulation, you're seeing uh, investors needing uh, different types of ESG data um, uh, for different use cases uh, across the board. And with that increase in the, you know, the annual increase rate of 28% in the data market, uh, uh, investors are having to buy more and more data sets. And oftentimes they can't get all the data they need from the same vendor. Um, and this really causes a, a problem for our clients where they're having to take, you know, you know, five, six, seven different ESG data sets from different vendors and then having to bring all that data together in order to provide, uh, you know, solid analysis. There was a great um, uh, study uh, by uh, Harvard uh, that looked at integration challenges uh, for companies. And you can see that the top two integration challenges each have uh, implications for you know, bringing data together. The first, the number one integration challenge is that uh, there's a lack of consistency between ESG ratings providers, which oftentimes mandates that uh, investors are buying multiple ESG data sets in order to cobble together a holistic analysis. Uh, the number two issue is that uh, clients are having difficult uh, times uh, actually accessing information and data, which is oftentimes exacerbated when you're trying to connect multiple different data sets together. So what we're likely going to start seeing in the marketplace is uh, clients um, focusing on vendor consolidation as well as uh, trying to find solutions uh, where they can bring multiple ESG data sets together and have them uh, sort of connected for them. I think the institutional investors, believe it or not, I found this incredible, spending on average a half a million dollars for ESG data, which is pretty staggering if you think about it. So as that becomes more, I would imagine, centralized, whatever the word is, I would imagine that cost goes down. But then it goes into sustainable finance initiatives, which, again, a very difficult thing to sort of wrap your head around, but such an important component of ESGs. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I, I mean, there's the, the increase in spend that's happening. And I think the 500K number is, is an average across institutional investors. When you're looking at large institutional investors, that's a very small budget for, for ESG. I think uh, the way to think about this is that, you know, those ESG dollars have to spread across multiple different use cases. So thinking about uh, being able to disclose uh, to regulations, that's going to be a slightly different data set than trying to identify thematic exposures uh, within a portfolio or, or trying to uh, align a portfolio to the sustainable development goals. And so uh, there's there's just a, pr uh, a number of different use cases that are continuing to pop up in the ESG space uh, that clients um, are needing to react to because their clients you know, uh, are the investors' clients are, are asking for them. And so there, there's more and more ESG data sets that are needed in order to meet those needs. 
All right. Well, that was a great conversation. It's one that um, I didn't participate in much because I am learning about it and and just the importance of it. Um, you know, it used to just be, Guy, I felt like just a hot button topic and it was really divisive on both sides. And I think a lot of the stuff around this topic have really worked themselves out because of some of the issues that we've talked about here as it relates to energy and, and I think the differing views about energy. Um, so, so listen, thank you very much, Eli. Let's bring all these guys um, back up here. I just want to say to our market call viewers, you're going to see all of them more with us on these really uh, important topics. So we want to thank um, John, Matthew, and Eli. And you can find their work, um, uh, their daily insights um, at insight.factset.com slash subscribe. So go there, subscribe to it. You'll get all their work in their inbox. Um, Guy and I do. And I just want to say this is that, you know, Guy started out this call by saying, you know, these guys have been great partners to us, FactSet. We only, we don't only stare at FactSet machines all day long. Guy and I use a lot of the tools, a lot of the analytics, a lot of the insights for our own analysis analysis that we work into our market call in our on the tape podcast, our okay computer podcast. And then you'll hear us talk about facts set on CNBC's um, fast money too, because we are quoting it. They're important inputs to us. So thank you guys for all the great work that you do. Thank you for the support of guy and I, and what we do over here at risk Commercial media guy. I'll kick it over to you. No, it's, I think I, well, I don't think I know it's helped me personally become better at what I do. Now, a lot of people would say you could have only gotten better, but, which is also true. <laughs> But, you know, when you read through the work and try to understand uh, and you look at the screens and John's work, Eli's work, Matthew's work and a number of other people that we'll highlight as well. It just helps um, make our jobs a little bit easier and helps us sort of discern, synthesize and understand the information that they put out on a much more granular level and they make it easy and accessible. So I want to thank you as well, fellas. Thanks so much for being here and watching this with us.